0: Church, two weeks ago, we finished our walk through the entire book of Exodus, Uh, and that was a long journey for most of you. We went from last Covenant Renewal Sunday to this Covenant Renewal Sunday, going throughout the entire book, so thank you for walking through it with me. Um, Along the way, we did get to pause and hop over to another wonderful book in Colossians. We got to study some of that, tying it to Jesus, Uh, and I wanted to give you a little bit of roadmap. Uh, for those of you who may have missed last week, building from Exodus to Covenant Renewal Sunday is important. We talked about the importance of covenant last week uh, because it's not a word that we typically use when we talk about our faith. Think, if you remember last week, we talked about how the American church, if you look at its history, covenant isn't in there so much as revival is. That many of us grew up on a, a church and a faith that was presented to us in a more revival-type mentality, where you, you, the goal was to call out things that weren't right so that you could get things to be right. You know, the salvation moment being the pinnacle of what faith was after. And we said, well, yeah, certainly revival is a key ingredient to our faith. But the way that the Scripture talks about faith, and the way we kind of have seen in Exodus, is that God is after revival, but in light of something bigger. And that 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 faith that God is talking about in light of something bigger actually helps us wrestle with the question that many people are wrestling is, okay, if I was to believe in Jesus, then what? And our world hasn't quite seen a very compelling answer of that from the church because many in the church we're still wrestling with, what does that look like? And I can't help but wonder if it's maybe because we have forgotten what covenant looks like. The language of covenant is all throughout scripture, church, and we've seen in in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus, as we've been saying it this year, that it gives us the idea of a faith that's built on God delivering us from sin, so there's kind of the revival piece, but also molding us into his image. In Exodus, we've said this as reconciliation and image bearing. These two things go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Uh, I feel like I have said reconciliation and image-bearing more this past year than I had at any other time in my life. And and I keep getting hit over the head with it. It's right here. It's right here in Exodus. And so we're going to go back as we think to next Sunday where we're talking about covenant, right, and our covenant renewal. What does church membership look like for us? Last week we saw how covenant kind of reshapes our idea of what faith is. What is God after in his people? And with that in mind, we're going to look today, kind of doing the same thing as last week, where rather than honing in on one chapter, we're going to take like a 30,000-foot overview of the entire book of Exodus and say, okay, God, if this is what you're after, if you're after some sort of rhythm where you're you're reconciling us to yourself, you're you're making us right, you're saving us from sin, but you're also molding us into your image where you've, you've said something about putting your spirit in our hearts and you're teaching us to be more like you, what does that practically lead us to do? And I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit because just like 1 Corinthians 13 showed us, it, when it's talking about the heart that God is trying to go, he says it's even greater than all the little stuff that I could tell you to do. So when, we, when I say, let's look at what Israel did or what the people of God were doing or what God was commending being done in Exodus, we're really looking more, not so much what the physical things they were doing but what's the heart that God is trying to have? And church, I, I'm deeply convicted, I guess is probably the right word, because it's, it's what we see in Jesus and it's what we've seen in Exodus, that as a, as a preacher, I can tell you what to do. But as your pastor, I have to shepherd you into a heart for God and trust that the Holy Spirit does indeed convict. And I ask that you guys trust that, hey, yeah, the, as a preacher, it's not my job to just tell you all what to do or to try to figure out what I'm supposed to do. But as your pastor, I am also learning, man, what is this heart that God is after? Because that heart is going to end up shaping me and my marriage and in my you know, relationship with my kids, my relationship with you guys. So we're going to look back over Exodus today and see, okay, if our faith is built on God delivering us from sin and molding us into his image, then what do we do? What's this heart we're supposed to have? The big picture of this is that God's people live with a heart, striving to reconcile creation to creator through worship, trust, and relationship. So at the end of the day, the heart that God is trying to grow in me and you is one that in all things is working to reconcile creation to creator, to bring us into a right relationship with God, our friends into a right relationship with God, even going all the way back to the beginning when God tells us to take dominion over creation. What does that look like? How do we lead creation to be right with its creator? And practically, this looks like a life of worship, a life of trust, a life of relationship. So let's pray together, church, and we'll we'll get in the plane, and we'll fly over the entire book of Exodus this morning. Lord, we are grateful for this journey that we have been on as we've been learning who you are, what you've done for us, and who we are in light of that. Lord, this has been a, a very sweet season, 16 months where we have gotten to journey together to see, God, if we call ourselves by your name, what does that mean? What should we do? What do we want to long for? What do we pursue? What, how does it change who we are, God, from if we don't have your name? Father, we're, we're not going to end that journey today, but we are looking to see, you know, that you are you're wrapping up a final chapter in the book of Exodus for us, church, as we move into new seasons of life and ministry beginning next Sunday. So God, show us one more time from Exodus what are you really asking of us? And may we be humbled enough this morning to get to hear the still voice of your spirit saying, this is it. This is who I have made you to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you begin, it actually doesn't take very long at the beginning of Exodus chapter 1 for us to get to see that what God is after in his people is a heart striving to reconcile creation to creator. If you begin in chapter 1, one of the first things you see is that Israel is being put into slavery by Egypt, and the Egyptians are told to kill, put to death, ...all of the firstborn males. And we're told in verse 17 that the midwives feared God... ...and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them... ...but they let the male children live. So right off the bat, we're introduced to a group of people... ...who they're introduced as Hebrew for the purpose of saying... ...they're part of the people of God... ...even though Israel might not know that yet. They're part of the people of God... ...and what they do is they're fearing God. So they're risking their own lives... For what? For keeping these babies alive. A picture of saying, well, no, to take a life is, is not part of God's image. I, I want to make sure God's image has a chance to be right with him. And notice how God rewards the midwives, not because of specifically what they're doing in keeping the babies alive, but in the fact that they feared him. Verse 21 tells us, because they're, they're right with God, God dwell, dealt well with, with the midwives. And it's, it's interesting because we're told in verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God is saying right off the bat, because you have feared me, you are now getting to taste the covenant promise. If you remember, God showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and says, hey, I'm going to make you into a great name and a great nation. Your descendants are going to number beyond, you know, the, to the ends of the earth. This this is a taste of the covenant promise for the people of Israel in the midwives, and we're told they receive this because they fear God. So all, already, right at the beginning, Moses is kind of giving us an inkling, saying, okay, watch this theme of learning to reconcile creation to creator, and notice how every time it comes up, God is going to say, yeah, that's what I'm after. Because the next thing we do, we go into chapter 2, and we're introduced to Moses. And we're told after Moses is born, and it's a miraculous way that he's able to stay alive, that one day in verse 11 of chapter 2, he grows up and he sees his people being beaten. And he looks this way and that, and he goes and he kills the Egyptian, and then he flees to the Midianites where he sees some shepherd girls that are also being oppressed by these other wicked male shepherds, and he drives them away. So whether Moses is doing this perfectly or not, we see a guy that has this heart of saying, okay... Something is not right between creation and whatever design it's supposed to be. I need to step in and to intervene. A heart that's starting to see a taste of reconciling creation to Creator. And so God shows up, and we see that what happens to Moses? Well, God brings him a wife who bears a son. Same thing as what happened to the midwives. It's this covenant promise starting. And I love Moses names his son Gershom which I don't know any kids named Gershom today, so if you have them, feel free to revive it. But what his name means is, uh, I am a sojourner. Almost as if Moses is saying, okay, I grew up in Egypt, but something about the way Egypt functioned, which church, if you remember, all throughout Exodus, we've said it's this narrative of power, production, and self. Something about that, I'm a stranger to. I'm not in covenant with that. I might not know fully this God that I'm supposed to follow, but that just doesn't seem right to me. I love that he names his son. Every time he sees his son, he's going to say, that's not quite right. I might not know today what the answer is, but that's not right. And God shows up, and this is instantly the first thing he teaches to Moses in chapter 3... ...is this heart for reconciling creation to creator. In verse 10, God gives his purpose statement to Moses right up front. He says, go, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses responds with this rapid fire string of questions. He says, well, who am I to do your work first off? Chapter 3, verse 11. How can I trust your reconciliation work? Verse 13. What if others don't like your work, chapter 4, verse 1? What if I'm not gifted enough to do your work, chapter 4, verse 10? Church, many of us have asked those same questions, right? God, who am I to take on your work? What if other people don't like the work? What if I'm not gifted? I love that God answers all of Moses' questions. He says, good, if you're going to learn to take my heart in me, you're going to have questions. You're going to have some doubts. You're not going to fully understand what this is like on day one. Ask me these questions. And he works with Moses, and the only time God gets offended is when he gets Moses to admit really where his heart is. Chapter 4, verse 13 says this. Moses is talking to God. He said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The questions did not offend God. God can work with the doubt. He can work with the insecurity. He can work with the not fully understanding everything that you're being asked to do. He can work with that. But when the heart is, please send someone else, that's when God steps in and says, no. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. But you shall speak to him, and you shall put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. is at this point, when God gets Moses to admit where, admit where his heart is at, church, that God says, oh, hold up. If you're going to be in covenant with me, we have to get this heart right. He says, you gotta understand, I'm not just trying to get you like to get some of the people out as if this is like one of the things. You need to have a heart that's going to reconcile creation to creator. And I love that even as grace to Moses, he gives him his brother Aaron to specifically address all the things that Moses is really worried about. Almost as if God is saying, I will provide for you a community in this covenant to help strengthen you, encourage you, grind. Round out your weakness, if you will, as you're living this life. And Moses, he's still not convinced. If you move into chapter 5, he, he initially starts to do this. He obeys God. He goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, understandably, Pharaoh doesn't like hearing this. And so Pharaoh does not treat Israel well. In fact, he makes their life worse, the whole making bricks without straw In chapter 5, 1 through 13. So Israel ends up turning on Moses. And it leads Moses to go to God and listen to what he says in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I, just, just picture what's taking place, church. Moses is standing in the presence of God. And not only is he saying, God, you, you might be a little off here saying, you're doing evil, God. He calls God's heart for reconciliation evil. He says, it's evil, it's leading other people to do evil. You haven't done a thing you promised. Like the, the gall for Moses to be able to do that. And then I realized this week, you know what? Maybe I don't stand before God and call his work evil. But I definitely go back and say, God, please send someone else. And in a way, that heart leads Moses to turn around and just later tell God that work, his work is evil. And it made me realize like how, how, grateful, how grateful I am for Christ. I mean, can you imagine if he, when he came to do the same thing, Work, a perfected work that God is pointing to in Moses of reconciling creation to creator. If the first time it wasn't received well, the first time Jesus started getting some death threats or some pushback from the work he's doing, that Jesus turned around and said, God, I don't know what you were thinking, but what you've asked me to do is evil. I think Christ, what what if he responded like God to Moses? I mean, he wasn't a popular guy. He wasn't a powerful earthly figure. His message of reconciliation did not appeal to the earthly elite of his day. So what if Christ turns around and says, God, that work that you're asking me to do is evil because of this. I mean, just praise God that we have an eternal Messiah who displayed the heart of God to reconcile creation to creator. But then what's deep for me this morning, church, is, well, I'm not supposed to have a heart like Moses. In the Holy Spirit within me, I have this heart of Christ. So I am called to something better, something bigger than what we see in Moses. God keeps emphasizing. Now he's going to not only be teaching Moses that this is what he's after, but also Pharaoh. He tells Moses to tell Pharaoh in each plague. He says, Let my people go. And then he adds a purpose statement to the end, so that they may hold a feast for me, chapter 5, verse 1. But then the more common one, so that they may serve me, chapter 7, 16, 8.1, 820, a couple times in chapter 9. Let my people go so they may hold a feast to me. Do you guys remember from last week I talk about what's one of my favorite places in Exodus? It's chapter 24 the holy picnic, right? This idea that of of eating in one's presence was a picture of reconciliation to the Israelite world. So when God says, let my people go hold a feast for me in the wilderness, he's not saying, because they don't have enough space to spread out all their blankets here in Egypt, Pharaoh. He's saying, no, let them go so they can be made right with me. Moses, this is your job to tell Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, this is what I want of my people. What will make them my people? That they will be reconciled To me. And the Hebrew verb serve, when he says, let them serve me, serve is abad, which means to be in bondage to, literally to be in covenant with. God says, this is what I'm after. And he keeps working on Pharaoh until Pharaoh understands this in the plagues. Pharaoh initially just says, no. Like, why should I listen to you, Moses? Then in chapter 8, Pharaoh says, well, you can go sacrifice. To your God. Hebrew there, just meaning to slaughter an animal. Don't go serve, but you could go kill an animal to your God. God says, no, that's not what I'm after. Then Pharaoh says, well, you could go out there and stay in the wilderness. Just don't, don't make a new covenant with him. God says, that's not what I'm after. Chapter 10, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, but leave the women and children behind. Because the men will come back for the women and children. God says, no, that's that's also not what I'm after. Pharaoh says, well, go, bring your women and children, but leave all your animals, your possessions, your livestock. God says, you still do not understand what I'm after. In fact, we don't actually see a picture of this completed until we've gone through celebrating the Passover and the passing through the final plague of death in chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 32. It's not until all of this takes place that we get to the end of chapter 14 where we see in verse 30, Thus saved the Lord. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. Ooh, there we go. Good things happen when people feared the Lord at the beginning. Now the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and. ...in his servant Moses. Now we're finally getting somewhere, church. Now God's people are finally seeing... ...oh, what God is really after... ...what he shows up to do... ...the first 14 chapters of Exodus... ...is just teach people... ...I need you to want to be right with me. And I need you to want the rest of the world to be made right with me. And I want you to have a heart that in all things says, God, it's, it's going to look different for different people in different circumstances. And I might not be able to do the same thing tomorrow that I did today, but God, I want to be right with you. And I want my neighbor to be right with you. I want my family to be right with you. A heart striving to reconcile creation to creator. This is where God starts. This is the first thing he shows up to his people and says, Hey, I'm looking for people who understand this. The midwives start to see it. Moses starts to see it. God partners with them to draw them into his covenant. That's what he's looking for us, church. If we're thinking about our faith as more than just a revival where we're just going to say these things are wrong, these things are right, we need to get rid of what's wrong to go be with what's right, we are seeing a heart for reconciliation that God says this is fundamental to who my people are. If we don't have this, as God told Moses, he says, no, no, you've got to get this right if you're going to be living well with me. So what does this practically look like? That's pretty much the whole rest of the book. God starts teaching his people, if you're going to have this heart with me, because I have taught you, Moses, to have this heart with me, here's what this looks like. So practically, what, what takes place the rest of the book? The first thing we see is worship. That God's people live with the heart striving to reconcile creation to creator through worship. The very first thing God does is he teaches his people to sing. Now, y'all sing really well. Uh, It's it's amazing, because there's not... I mean, maybe outside of some really large concerts, there's just not a place in our world where a lot of people gather together to sing. But there is something that God is teaching his people in the singing that Moses and his sister Miriam lead the whole nation in singing in chapter 15, where it says, we have come together to declare God is worthy. Specifically, Moses leads the people to praise God for who he is, for what he's done, and for who they are as a result. And this is just what our acts of worship are, church. We praise God... We give him glory for who he is, for what he's done, and who that makes us. This is is something we do. If we're striving to be made right with God and with others, we have to be really good at telling God, God, I see this in you. Thank you. God, I, I see because that's who you are, you've done this. Thank you. God, because you've done these things and you are this way, this is how my life is different. Thank you. God declares this for his people. We will be a people of worship in his covenant The second thing we're going to be that really takes up the bulk of the middle portion of Exodus is trust. That is, God's people are learning to worship Him, they are also learning what does it look like to trust God. He teaches them that trusting his reconciliation is enough for their lives. And in, in that, we need to, to pause for a second, Church. Because I I thought about this this week. When you and I talk about trusting God, we don't always mean the same thing, right? Trusting God is kind of this concept of like, well, but what does it really mean to trust God? Simply, church, what God teaches his people, when they're trusting him, he's teaching them, look, I have made you right with me. I have sent you to go be right with others and lead them to be right with me. That is enough. That is enough for you. That is enough for your life. Trust that if you are right with me and you are leading others to be right with me, that is enough. We see this in chapter 15, verse 22, all the way through chapter 17, verse 7. Three different times where God shows up and he teaches his people, trust that I will provide everything. My trust is not in my earthly provision. Don't take my lack of provision as a sign that I don't trust you. Trust that my reconciliation is enough. And that at the end of chapter 17 in verses 8 through 16, God says, okay, it's more than earthly provision, it's also more than safety or comfort. That persecution rises up against Israel while they're in the wilderness, and God says, If you trust me, then I will deliver you. Not, not trust if I deliver you, trust that you are right with me, and that is enough. Now watch me provide. Now watch me deliver. And he, he really deeply cares about whether his people get this or not. Because he, he shows up in chapter 18. And church, this, is, this chapter in particular is one people wrestle with. What does it mean? And some people even wonder, is this really like the place in the timeline of Exodus that this goes? Because we just, especially in an American church understanding, we have such a hard time grasping what is going on in chapter 18. God, when what the big picture of what he's doing is he's showing up, and again, as we've been seeing on all these previous chapters, he's teaching his people to trust him. This is what happens in verses 13 through 23. We see that Moses sits down to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come of me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So, let's put ourselves in Moses' shoes for a second, okay? The people have been delivered, right? They're no longer in Egypt. They've been told that they need to get to know this God. They don't really know this God very well. And so they're looking for someone who's going to essentially kind of lead them into God's image. But notice how Moses talks about what he does. He says, they come to me and I, I, the representative of God, decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Essentially, I tell them who's right And I tell them what they need to do moving forwards. Sounds a lot like revival. Calling out what's wrong, what's right, and what do we need to do. That doesn't sound so bad at first glance. In fact, it sounds for many of us like we said, well, yeah, Is that not what we're supposed to do? But Jethro responds in verse 17. He says, Moses' father-in-law said to them, What you are doing is not good. That's not what I was expecting. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. What's taking place here, church? Church? whether they realize it or not, is Moses is essentially leading them into a, I'll put, a a godly Egypt. He's leading them into saying, well, we need to have the godly power to lead to the right things being done, the godly production, so that we get people to be right with God, the godly self. And that doesn't sound... That weird to us, right? If the power production self-narrative of Egypt was bad, then how could a godly power production self-narrative also be bad? But Jethro says, What you are doing is not good you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. And and guys, I love the English language, but there are moments where it really fails to capture what's going on in the Hebrew. Because when it says to wear yourselves out, the Hebrew there is the verb nabel. Some of you may have heard of uh, some lady that uh, David falls in love with, Abigail. She's already married to a husband, Nabal. His name doesn't mean worn out, it means Fool. It means stupid. It means useless. This is the life, Jethro says, Moses, you're about to pull the people into a life that's senseless, a life that's foolish. In fact, the most often translation for Nabal in the Old Testament is it will fade away. And how much in the New Testament church do you hear of people talking about faith as something that will never fade? Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.4. Or that we have a a treasure that will never perish. This sounds like the opposite. Further, the Hebrew word there that says good, when we say something's not good, that, that doesn't seem so serious. But the word good, church, the Hebrew there is tov. Which is one of the most powerful words in the Old Testament. Because when God creates His creation in Genesis 1, He looks at the end of each day and says, and God saw that it was good. Now, here, Jethro looks at what Moses is doing and says, It's not good. In fact, what you are doing is the exact opposite of the image of God. What God creates, Tov, what you're doing, Moses, not Tov. To make a godly version of the power production self narrative, Jethro is telling Moses, That is the exact opposite of what God is after in his people because he is showing them his reconciliation and trusting it is actually something better the picture that Moses or that Jethro describes in the following verses beginning in verse 19 he says now obey my voice i will give you advice and god be with you you shall represent the people before god not god to the people he says you shall represent the people to god not the heart of I'm God's God's ambassador, I will tell you what to do. But the heart of God, I'm on behalf of these people. They are broken from you in their sin. God, please, take me in their place. The heart we see in Jesus. Represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. After you've done that, Moses, verse 20, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Once you've brought them to God, okay, this is the God you are to know. Here's what it looks like to live with him what they must do. 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of hundreds of thousands of fifties of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. He says, bring other people into doing this with you. Don't just keep yourself in this power production. God, Even if it is a godly version, he says, bring others into this life with you. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times. Not you, Moses. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. Why? Because they are all right with God together, church. They will decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. The heart of a reconciler is different church. In fact, let me, rather than just try to describe it to you, let me read you a quick, a quick bit where Paul describes what this looks like to the church in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is what Paul is telling them. He says, for you yourselves know brothers that our coming to you is not in vain. So he's about to say, what was the purpose of why we came to you? Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, there's that heart language. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear. To us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While well, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Church, Paul says, even in suffering and persecution to the point of death, I counted trusting God's reconciliation work worth it. That it is enough for me, verses 1 and 2. So I'm not going to rely on a Christ power production self narrative, verses 3 through 6. In fact, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to love for you, I'm going to care for you, verse 7. I'm going to not just share the gospel truth with you, but share my life with you, verse 8. I'm going to strive morning and night to live at peace with you, verse 9. I'm going to set an example in holiness, verse 10. I'm going to take you with me to do this, verse 11. This is a picture of a life that trusts God's reconciliation work is enough. It's honestly way less complicated than we often make it. It's way less dependent upon external circumstances than we make it, church. And it fits with what we see in the rest of Scripture. And it kind of shows where God is going next. He says, if this is the heart you're going to have, if you're going to worship me well, if you're going to trust me well, you've got to be able to relate well with one another. That in God's covenant, we work to be at right at peace with Him and others. So a heart that's striving for reconciliation is a heart that's going to be in relationship. That's going to relate well with, with people. We saw that Israel being made right with God, chapter 19, verse 1, through chapter 20, verse 11. And others, twenty twelve through 18. And then all of chapter 21, 22, 23. All of this is God showing Israel what does it look like to be made right with me and to be made right with one another so that you can be in my presence, chapter 20, 19 through 20, and then the glorious glorious holy picnic of 24. In fact, he calls them to build the temple so that they could be made right with God, chapters 25 through 27, but also to lead others in being made right with God, 28 through 31. As this relational work is key, To reconciliation. It's not an option. When it becomes an option, that's when you get to places like chapter 32, where if you look at the first eight verses of Exodus 32, you see that Moses has taken a long time up on the mountain. So, verse 1 the people gather together, they say to Aaron, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. We are tired of waiting, we are tired of trusting. Go make this thing happen for us, Aaron. Make us gods who shall go before us. They'll bear our image. They will be our power on earth. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. How quickly they have turned on their Messiah figure. Verse 2, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So, all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron. They stripped themselves of their dignity and they are fine with it. Doesn't sound too good. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now they're taking what God's doing and they've slapped it on an idol. Doesn't sound too good. Verse 5, when Aaron sees this, he built an altar before it. It's just snowballing at this point. And Aaron makes a proclamation said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. No, Israel! And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 7, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And here's what really got God's goat, if you will. Verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. That word their way, is the word derech. And it literally means road, but figuratively means a way of life. That word is used in the Old Testament when talking about covenant. God has said the second you tried to make a godly a godly version of the power production self-narrative. You stopped worshiping me. You stopped trusting me. You stopped relating well with one another. In fact, you took my name and you slapped it onto an idol. So what God is after in his people, you see in the last seven chapters of Exodus, God shows right back up and he says... Now, where were we? And he leads them to be made right with him again. He teaches them, look, this reconciliation work, that's what I want of you. You can't be my people if you don't have this heart. I want you to be right with me. He reteaches them how to worship. He reteaches them how to trust. He reteaches them how to relate well with one another. Church, he is after a change of their heart, and all of Scripture points to this. The prophet Jeremiah twenty-four, seven says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. This is what David cries out after Bathsheba, Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is what Paul says. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't mix God with the power production self. That's not going to get you what God's after. I'm after a new heart. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. It just it jumped out to me, church, and I had been kind of feeling out where and what chapter to talk about this and realized, no, we, we need to recognize that this is what God is after in His people from beginning to end of the book of Exodus, but also Scripture. We live with a heart that is striving to reconcile creation to Creator through worship, trust, and relationship. And if this is the heart God is desiring us to have, then that should lead us to just ask a few questions this morning. So questions for us. I mean, first, it starts with, do I have a heart that's reconciled to God? I mean, and first, for some of you, th- that may need to be our starting point today. Like, God, just, I need to recognize before you that you made me a certain way, you, you created, you desired me to be a certain way, and I don't have that heart, God. I don't. I, I hear from what you've been talking, that there's this, this sin thing that has broken us apart from you. And I don't have the heart that you're asking me to have, but God, I want that. Church, maybe today, I mean, we've, we're going to talk about this next, which is uh, the whole next series is going through the book of Hebrews to say, this is Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. This is how Jesus plays into all of this. The covenant we have with Jesus is even better than this, church. That to declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we don't just hope to eventually learn this heart that God is after in his people. But that heart gets placed into us with the Holy Spirit. That if we ask God to make us right with him, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ's church, we will receive this heart. So maybe some of you today need to say, God, I don't have that heart, but I want to. And if that's you, then, then, man, come talk with us after service, because that is is the starting point. But for the rest of us, if we have already done that and we have this heart within us, consider how we are striving toward reconciliation in all these areas. How is our worship? How is our worship? I I mean, are, are we coming in looking for what we can be getting out of it? Are we looking to compare how things are going? Or are we just looking to praise who God is, what He's done, and who that has made us? Because we see something in that changes my heart to be more like God. How's our trust? Church, I need the Spirit. I need the Spirit to show me where I am tempted to match our world's power production narrative within my mind, a godly version. Because it sounds like it should be so good and something people should really be able to pick up on. And I can't help but read through Exodus and go, not only was God not really wanting that, that was contrary to who He is. So maybe we need to this morning just say, God, help me trust you. Trust that being right with you, that working in, in all the different places of my life to just as Paul said, to, to be caring for others, to be striving toward peace, to share the gospel in my life alongside others, to lead people doing likewise, to walk humbly with them. Maybe that is enough. Maybe that is enough. How's our trust? How's our relationship? And And the... The way that I like to phrase it is how's our relational capacity? Those of you who are on the pastor search team, when you guys asked me what did I really want to see our church grow in, I think some of you phrased it who are you looking, like who are you hoping our church reaches in the community? I said people with a high relational capacity. People who want to know people, people who want to be known by people, people who are are just good at relating well with others. I say you, you, can, you can do a lot of things in a church, but if you don't have people who can relate well with one another, then discipleship does not take place. And at the end of the day, we see in Scripture that is what, we're, what God calls us to do with this heart of reconciliation is to be made right with Him and lead others in doing likewise. So how is our relational capacity, church? I define it as our actions and our abilities to be relational people. So just something as simple as like, I don't know, do I have people that I go hang out with? Am I approachable? Like, am I comfortable? You know, it doesn't mean that you have to go to 5 million people today or that you have to talk to every single person in the room every time you step in. But can you share part of your life with somebody else? Do we build time and space for relationships in our week? Do we fill our schedule so full that we see people as inconveniences because they're calling it the worst possible time while well, I'm trying to get things done? Those of you who have kids know it's a special role with parenting that you can't see your kids as an inconvenience because they are always interrupting what you're trying to do unless your focus is not on what you're trying. To do, but on relating well. As you wrestle through these questions, church, this this is where we have to go all the way back to the beginning and say, Notice how when Moses didn't get it, God brought him Aaron. As as Moses is struggling to lead the people, God says, Give that responsibility out. As, As Moses and Aaron are trying to lead the people to be right, God gives them a priesthood. God builds his covenant in the context of community. Churches, you and I are learning and trying to figure this out and being open and honest with each other. This this is not something that your pastor is telling you to go do on your own, but God has given to us to do together. And so this is what we celebrate on our Covenant Renewal Sunday, that God has called us as members of New River Fellowship to, to live this life, to grow this heart. And so I wanted to share with you, and and Bert has some copies of it at the back if you're interested, just in preparation for next week. But what are we asking our church members to do when we're pursuing these things? Well, there's five commitments that are on that piece of paper, and they each have their own subset of actions, so I'm just going to read the commitments to you this morning. But the first one is that, I will cultivate my relationship to Jesus Christ, obey His teachings, and practice His ways. Second, I will protect the unity of my church and Christ's kingdom. Third, I will share the responsibility of my church and Christ's kingdom. Fourth, I will serve in the ministry of my church and Christ's kingdom. And fifth, I will proclaim the glory of my Lord to others and tell others of his marvelous works. Church, we exist to get to do this together. The the teaching, the worship, the small groups our events, just the times that you guys spend together outside of this building and in non-official church capacities. All of this is saying, hey, I'm living life together with people who have committed to doing this, which is a beautiful thing. In fact, it's something God gives us and says, you're going to need this if you're going to live out my covenant well, because God says, I love you. I know all the ways you're going to wrestle With this. I know all the ways you're going to struggle with this. And so, church, as a body who is gathered here in God's presence, being able to admit we don't fully get this, but God, you have called us to this picture of covenant and we want to know more. We want to be with you. We want to join your reconciliation work. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, Thou art almighty. In the dispensations of providence, all wise. In the gospel of grace, all love. In Thy Son, Thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin, the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of Thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, who have zeal, who have confidence but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity, not only by our dependence upon Jesus but by our love to Him, our conformity to Him, our knowledge of Him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the Spirit, that profits by every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen.